Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 187 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, there is no guest. You got me, and all me, for this whole episode, which... (laughs) I personally love this episode. I love doing my annual lessons learned, so I hope that you get something from it and uh, we will return to our normal format next week. There's actually um, an everybody drink. (laughs) Typical that in a solo episode, I'm already talking about strengths, but um, in my actual strengths report, there is a line that that says... Um, you know, you love to reflect on what went well, what didn't go so well, uh, in a kind of like a review style thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's almost like I do these annual lessons learned every year. Fucking love it. But anyway, right, let's get on with the uh, beginning bit of the show. So Last week's question was, what is giving you life right now? Karen Heenan said two things are giving me life right now. Season three of Ted Lasso and Rufus, my new son. Is that, I don't know if that's a dog or, or I think it's a dog or a cat or a person. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I tried Ted Lasso. I got a few episodes in. Um, not going to carry it on. I, like, I thought it was kind of funny. I, I sort of liked it, but not enough. Really, it's not really my thing. Um, but everybody's been talking about it, so I wanted to try it. And um, yeah, uh, I don't know. Maybe I need to, like, persist. Tell me, do I need to persist? Uh, Carrie Hardisky said, Warmer weather has finally arrived. Took Tiny Rebel to have a picnic lunch with grandma and cousins. Then went back to our house to play while I had a short Zoom meeting. We both got sunburned. Oh no! But it was a lot of fun. Our driveway is full of sidewalk chalk drawings from three preschoolers. Going to be planning zoo trips and I promised my nephews I'd try to make as many of their baseball games as I can this summer. Heather Button said, purging things and making my home more livable. Love the sound of that. Hailing in uh, hail, hailing the cloud glow. No, the glow cloud said, "What's giving me life right now is that my book pitch made it to the second round of a selective process, and they've asked to read the first ten pages. That is very exciting. Congratulations, uh, Jack K. Boyles. Oh, said cold and flu tablets. Oh no, I'm so sorry. I hope you feel better soon." Okay, well, in theme keeping of this week, this week's question is, what is the biggest lesson you've learned since starting writing? The book recommendation this week is The Worst Wedding Date by Pippa Grant. Now, I'm only about 30-something percent of the way through this book, but I read that 30% on the way into uh, the London Book Fair yesterday, and (laughs) I laughed so much that I got looks on the train and the tube. So I highly recommend this book. It is basically a, um, yeah, it's it's situated at one of the characters' um, friend slash sister's wedding and the best friend falls in love with uh, the, the, the brother and uh, it is just so funny. Like it's a disaster, disaster waiting to happen and there's only one bed and it just has a bunch of my favourite traits and I just love it. I think it's fantastic, mostly because it's making me laugh and so it's such an easy read. I was interested because... Um, 
this book got to number one on the Amazon US Amazon store. I've been watching the charts quite closely uh, the last uh, couple of weeks. Normally, I tend to focus my reading on um, the bestsellers in my genre, but I thought I would branch out and read something a little different. Uh, you all know I like to read widely anyway, and I'm really glad I did because this is um, a surprising delight. I don't normally enjoy contemporary that much. Like, I really love fantasy. Uh, but yeah, this has been hilarious. So I highly recommend it. Okay, and so in personal news and update, I'm not really going to give too much here. I have been um, in Seville, I have been to the London Book Fair, and I feel like a fucking shell of a human. <laughs> I am so tired. I thought I was tired at the weekend. <laughs> oh, I am exhausted and today is a full-on day. I've got two podcast interviews as well as doing this which is a solo episode so I think I'm going to need like three weeks off. No I'm kidding as if I'd give myself three weeks off. Um, I, I am going to do nothing this evening though <laughs> that is for sure and then uh, tomorrow I go back to editing and I'm going to try and give myself a week to get this book edited and into the hands of my editor uh, so that I can start work on the next book. There were some really exciting meetings at London Book Fair. I don't want to say anything just yet because, you know, with any kind of business meeting, you never know if these things are going to come to fruition or not. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. It was a lot of talking, a lot of peopling. I really enjoyed it. Um, one thing that didn't feel quite like it normally does is that normally I feel like I get a bit more of that tribe feeling, that feeling of being with my people. And I didn't really get that this year. I was a bit disjointed. There weren't quite so many like breakout areas to sit and have coffee and sort of catch up with people. Um, and so I am considering going to SPF in June. Um, this is Mark Dawson's um, conference. I haven't got a ticket yet, but I am I'm not 100% decided I wasn't going to do it uh, just because I've already done so many <laughs> conferences. Um, but uh, I kind of didn't get quite enough people. Like, I had enough people time, but, like, not enough of, like... I don't know. I don't know. There was just something missing for me at London Book Fair that I used to get at the other... Um, at previous year's London Book Fair. So I don't know. I may. I may. I might be convinced. I'm not sure. We shall see. The Rebel of the Week this week is Holly. Holly says, I went to secondary school in a busy tourist town with an old castle right there in the middle of it. It was free to enter and many of us would have lunch there once we were old enough to be allowed to leave the school grounds for lunch. Anyway, one day when I was 15, I went with three other girls to the castle and we found a hidden away bench under a shelter to sit and knock back a cocktail that one of them had brought from home. It was a, it had a bit of everything uh, from her parents' booze collection in it. It was vile. But we sat there giggling and drinking this concoction for the whole lunch hour, then went back to school for our afternoon classes. I had PE followed by drama. I don't remember much of PE, funnily enough, but by the time I got to the drama room, I had sobered up and was hung over. I spent most of the lesson hiding in the in a dark corner regretting all of my life choices. It was my first foray into dr day drinking and let's just say it didn't happen again, not while I was still at school anyway. On the tiny off chance that my old drama teacher is listening to this, I'm very, very sorry. Oh my goodness me, I love that. I actually had forgotten all about the fact that um, I used to leave school during the lunch break, you know, when, when we were old enough. And um, 
I, oh my goodness me, the amount of shit and, and naughtiness that I got up to on those lunch breaks. <laughs> I think that's like, I think every teenager needs to do that at least a few times. Oh, I love these rebel stories so much. Please, please do send in your stories. If you've been listening and thinking, oh, you know, I have a story, but I don't know. No, trust me, you need to send it in. You need, need, need to send in your stories. They can be anything big, small, something in between. They can even be someone else's rebellion you can email your rebel story to becca over on rebel author podcast at gmail.com hello and welcome to two new patrons adam beswick adam who i met in um seville actually he is a tiktok superstar um and is an absolute delight uh i loved meeting him and tamara prince who i haven't met yet uh but a huge thank you to you both and a ginormous thank you to all of my existing patrons you guys help to keep the show alive you help to keep me thinking that what i'm doing is worthwhile and i really really appreciate you all if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black this episode is sponsored by kobo writing life kobo's free fast and easy self-publishing platform kwl was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world With this in mind, Kobo has developed a way for authors to reach audiobook listeners with direct audiobook upload. You can now publish an audiobook right in your Kobo Writing Life account as easily as you can publish an ebook. You can create a customizable table of contents, set the price in 16 different currencies, and even set up a pre order for your audiobook with no date limitations. There's no exclusivity, and you will always have control of your pricing. And once your audiobook is published, there are lots of promotional opportunities. Kobo even have customizable social assets that you can download to share on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, making it even easier for you to reach this growing market. If you're a KWL author and you don't yet have access to audiobooks tab or the promotional mailing list, email the team at writinglife at kobo.com and they'll hook you up. Don't forget, you can purchase audiobooks on Kobo.com and they will download directly to your free Kobo app or e-reader. If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. Create your free account today at Kobo.com forward slash writing life. Okay, so let's dive straight into my annual lessons learned. Now, I am going to link to the year one, year two, and year three lessons in the show notes. And I will start with um, an apology because I usually start with an income and asset update. And uh, that is because this is tax season in the UK. And usually... (laughs) I am caught up with my books and I have handed them to my accountant and we have finished off all of the books, um, the accounting books that is, and I haven't done it this year just because I've been so snowed under. Um, So I am delayed on that and I will do better for next year. So I will do an income update proper uh, for next year. What I will say is that I'm slightly down on last year's income, uh, but that is only because I chose to step back and pour all of the time into the fiction, which I think we will see a very different um, income update by the end of 
this year so when I do five years uh, so yeah I think I will probably do an extended one next year so that I can do a proper comparison for you as I'm like missing out this year Okay, so the very fact that I am here once again writing or or kind of talking to you a review of the previous year is like just astonishing to me. I can't really believe that it's been another year. Time really is very odd at the moment. I don't know if it's a thing because I'm getting older or, you know, because I have less of it because I am running around being a mum and being a businesswoman and all of the rest of it. But... I'm just astonished that we are now at four years. I think I'm astonished both from the fact that I've made it another year and the fact that it has been now four years since I left my day job. The reason that it feels so odd is because I spent half of this time in pandemic lockdowns. So I left my day job, uh, the first day working for myself was the 1st of May, 2019. And then, of course, we were in lockdown by May, March the 23rd, 2020. So less than a year into me working for myself full time, we were locked down. And in the UK, we suffered under extreme lockdowns. So we had um, uh, months and months and months of being locked in. And uh, so I would say the first... So after that first year, I would say the following two years were in pandemic times. So it's only really this last year that I feel like I've been able to accelerate and sort of start running. So uh, this is why time is a bit of a life to me and I'm so shocked that it is now four years. However, I love these little markers in time. I spend so much of my waking hours burning hard and just like surging forward at a nuclear rate that I just don't give myself the time to stop. I don't, you know, look back. I often forget to do that and look back and be proud of everything that I've done and that I've achieved. And so I really like that the that that is what this is. It's a moment in time. And despite, uh, you know, the fact that uh, I'm a little bit down on income compared to last year, actually, I feel like I have more potential and I'm now definitely the start of this um, calendar year as opposed to tax year. I'm seeing growth like I've never seen it before. So, um, you know, while the British person in me is kind of crumbling and dying at the thought of celebrating all of the things from this last year, I hope that you can bear with me because I'm really fucking proud of this last year. And, you know, I wrote most of this as I was sat on the plane uh, going to Seville. And that's something that I wouldn't have dreamt was ever possible four years ago, uh, you know, whilst I was in my day job having my soul crushed on a daily basis. So yeah, I just thank you all for being here and for listening and for you know uh, enabling me to be able to do this and to to talk to you and share my lessons learned from the last four years okay so lesson one is business growth is personal growth all right it is not going to be a surprise to anyone uh, but so much of this last year and probably I would say the last 18 months but who's counting at this point has been spent on personal development if you're a long-time listener to this podcast then you know you'll already know this I flung myself into the Clifton Strengths coaching Becca Symes program and then uh, continued with one-on-one coaching and I won't lie I have genuinely spent thousands of pounds on coaching at this point but I truly believe that it has been worth every single single, every single penny. 
this last year, I feel like I have almost gutted myself out. I kind of scoured and cored out all of the shit and crap and self-limiting beliefs that I had. And I, you know, kept going and digging and coring out until I was more or less a shell and then piece by piece like I think I feel I feel like this is what Clifton Strengths does it, it kind of breaks you down and then piece by piece it rebuilds you into a stronger you know more healthy more whole um person like do I still have more work to do fuck yes I do I am nowhere near where I want to be and I feel like life in general is a journey of growth and personal development and so if we ever stop doing personal development then and we we become static we become we slow down like change is growth at the end of the day um you know that doesn't mean i'll always do clifton strengths coaching it may be that i find another method that i want to to try but for now whilst i'm still seeing all of these gains i am going to continue the interesting thing for me is that I do think the amount of personal growth that I've done in the last year is testament to the fact that 2023 has already seen two record sales months for me. It saw the best pre-orders and my best launch. If a year of personal growth does that, what will two do? What will three do? Where will I be in five years? So I wanted to give you um, a kind of a rundown of the biggest moments. And you'll have to forgive me because... I can't quite remember the exact dates, but I've sort of done a year, maybe 18 months, because I feel like that is really the, the moments that I'm capturing in this last 18 months. It feels like we are reaching a new level right now, and this is all of the journey up to that. So I finally finished Trey. <laughs> that fucking book. I'm a writer, of course, but for four fucking years, I couldn't write fiction. Like, the amount of imposter syndrome and self-doubt that created was catastrophic, and it became a vicious cycle. The more I couldn't write, the more imposter syndrome I felt. And that was despite the fact that I was still learning, I was still studying, still doing non-fiction uh, craft books. But, you know, th that the fact that I wasn't really writing or I wasn't writing novels became a problem for me. I genuinely spent months months, maybe even years, thinking that I was never going to write fiction again. And that was terrifying to me because that's why I left my day job. I left because I wanted to write fiction. So as I said, this did become a bit of a vicious cycle for me, but it was also the first real breakthrough that I had with my coach. And the truth of the matter is, Trey flopped hard. In fact, that whole series flopped, but I will kind of talk a little bit more about that. Um, well, I kind of have talked about that in like the Ruby stuff. You guys all know that, uh, you know, I didn't really write it. I wrote it for me rather than thinking about it in terms of the market. And the ways that I spoke about it was not very positive. And of course, that is going to affect how people feel about it. Nobody's going to want to buy and read something that you yourself, um, you know, don't don't love. So it's not that we can't talk about our struggles. But I think, we have to be careful with the way that we talk about the work itself. And that was a real lesson that I learned um, this last year because it was so radically different in the way that I was talking about Ruby. Um, and in part of, part of that, the way that I was talking about Ruby was because I did do this personal growth and I did fall back in love um, with fiction again. 
Okay, it's one of the things that, um, you know, one of the reasons that I had to do it, because I did get questions like, why didn't you just leave the series, abandon it, just move on? But uh, in finishing it out, I proved something to myself that I could keep going and that I could work through the hardest book I've ever written and I could come out the other side. Doesn't mean it was going to be a success, but that wasn't the expectation that I ever put on it. The expectation I put on it was that I needed to finish it. Um, You know, I didn't want to let it beat me. Okay, (laughs) there we go. That's why I couldn't stop is because I didn't want it to beat me. I didn't want that book to be the book that crippled me. But doing that, pushing through those hardest moments, it teaches you something. It changes a person. It That self-knowledge that you do actually have enough grit and that you can do things quite, you know, that are hard, quite literally changes your brain chemistry. The pandemic crippled my ability to hit deadlines. You know, I had my kid. I never knew what I was going to be able to get done. I didn't know how many days, uh, how many hours work I was going to get done in a day. And that crushed like my self-confidence and my self-assurance and my faith in myself. And so over the last 18 months, I've gone through quite a lengthy process. And I think these are the three kind of main things that, that have happened. So The first one was understanding my writing process. I kind of really learned how I write best. And then I streamlined it and created a system of tools that I could use if I ever got blocked. So like for me, talking my plot out is usually extraordinarily helpful. Uh, I know that doesn't work for everybody, but for me it does. So I wrote down everything that I did, everything, every little thing from creating a Pinterest board to drawing maps, looking in coffee table books, going to museums, going to big castles, like whatever it is that feeds my brain, um, you know, and that helps my brain to write books. I wrote all of that down, got it into a really concise list, and I would make sure that I checked off all of those things before I would start a new book. Like if that is what it takes for me to write a book, why? fucking fight it? Why fight yourself on knowing that you do need to read five books or you need to read 50 books or you need to watch TV? Don't fight it, just do it so that you can get the book done faster. Or not necessarily faster, but like in the most effective way. For me, it means faster. It doesn't necessarily mean faster for you. And I'd like to clarify... Based on the conferences that I've been, speed is not a game that we can win. I use fast because, hello, competition number one, fast is a thing that I like. Doesn't mean, um, you know, I'm never going to be able, be able to beat an AI machine, but I want to be fast for me personally, um, not necessarily fast for the industry, right? Because I'm not a rapid releaser. I don't release rapidly. I, you know, I don't release... I only release in at best half a dozen books a year. Um, And even that, that's the first this year. So I would not call myself a fast, you know, publisher. I might be a fast writer, but I'm not a fast publisher. Anyway, the other thing that I did to kind of repair my confidence was I set small deadlines that I could definitely meet or beat and more importantly, beat. So rather than setting like you must finish the draft by X date, I started off by saying you need to finish this chapter this week. And knowing me and how I write, obviously I could finish it that day. And that beating that deadline game started to rebuild my confidence. And so over time, I was able to set slightly bigger deadlines, slightly longer deadlines. Number three then was writing with my strengths rather than against them. So finding people to sprint with consistently and regularly, 
like much as I genuinely hate to rely on others has actually changed my life. Um, you know, my writing speed has significantly improved. I've gone from uh, being able to write 2000 words in a day to be being able to at peak write about 2600 words an hour. So, you know, I'm still not the fastest person. I know there are people out there that can write more than that, but that's fast for me. And this is this is about me and my process and my growth, right? Like I don't fucking care what anybody else does. I want to be the best version of me. Like, and so, you know, I know we all talk about how compa competition does comparison and stuff, but but also I compare to me, right? Like, I don't give a shit if you're writing whatever you're writing, you know, 5,000, 10,000 words an hour. Great, great, good for you. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. But I do want to write the fastest that I can write. And so this is about how do I get to the slickest, most efficient, best process to write books for me. And that is what this process has taught me. So, you know, the change that I've seen in the last 18 months is that it's got, I've gone from taking six months on average to write a book. That's what I used to do. That's what I did for the first 10 books, I would say. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm now able to write a book. I think the fastest I've done it is 12 sessions or two and a half weeks. Um, and being able to write and edit a book in a month. This is a huge shift. It fundamentally changes the shape of my business. If I can go from two to three books a year to four to six, that's quite literally double. Um, and that's whilst I'm still doing freelance, whilst I still only have school hours and, you know, realistically four hours a day because I go to boot camp. So, you know, that is giving me hope that actually in the future I might be able to be even more prolific or if I'm not pro more prolific I might have more time to do other things that I find interesting in terms of business stuff more classes more speaking more whatever um you know so I am very optimistic that in another decade I will be writing even more more than this at least I will be producing more whatever that more looks like now, that said, this producing more and publishing more has consequences for the business infrastructure, which I will come to later. But last and probably more significantly was a mindset shift for me. Everything now is an experiment. Yes, I know writers hate data, but tough baby. <laughs> Data gives you feedback. It tells you whether what you're doing is working. And so what I'm doing now is that, that I'm approaching everything like an experiment. This is so, so hard for me because I want to know what I'm going to be doing six months from now, a year from now, three years from now. I find it incredibly fucking difficult not to know what my plan is, you know, three years down the line. I know that I'll be writing and right now that has to be enough. I just don't necessarily know what I'll be writing. And the reason that I don't know is I want the flexibility to be able to pivot into something that I think is going to earn me more money. So, you know, for me, this is about making good money. So as much as I'm currently following a genre that like sings to my heart, if I can't reach my goals, and I have to enact like kill criteria to kill this project, I will, I will do it. And, you know, sometimes it hurts not to write what your soul desires, but life is a negotiation. And what I'm trying desperately to do is find a genre and find a place where I can eat my, have my cake and eat it, where I'm happy writing and I can also make money. That said, everything is a compromise. And, you know, I don't want to end up like the sunk cost fallacy. I don't want to end up pouring money and time and effort and energy into something that's not going to succeed. 
So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm trying to be a fucking ballerina on my tippy toes and you know I want to be able to spot where I think I can make money and go do that and be more open to change and and, adap- and adapting and pivoting because I don't actually think that I was very open to pivoting. I don't think that I was very open to adapting. I came in thinking that I had to do this, that and the other and that was the end of it. But actually, what business owner do you know? What CEO do you know who is that rigid? Fucking none. None of them. You look at every CEO's journey and they all pivot and, and are open to new opportunities. And sometimes those opportunities are the things that create, you know, the explosions in their business. So this is me looking at the universe going, I'm open, baby. <laughs> okay. And this is the hard bit. So next up we have my significance wounds. And even as I say this, like when I was typing this, I like it was hard for me not to cry. But I think this is the biggest revelation that I've had uh, over the last year. And it's that I had major, major uh, self-worth issues. We all have bullshit from our past that leads us to think things that just aren't true. There's the old adage of parenting that we all fuck our kids up. The only question is like, you know, what mess, what shade of messed up we make them or we paint them. And that's not me slating my parents, by the way, because my parents are actually fucking incredible. Um, but for whatever reason, and yes, I now know the reasons, but this isn't a therapy podcast, so I'm not going to go into it. I was 35 before I realized that I spent most of my life feeling unloved. And so I had also consequently, based on my strengths, everyone drink, you know, I spent most of my life trying to win love. And I was trying to make up for the fact that I didn't think that I was lovable. And that shit damages a person's self-worth and self-value. But here's the strange thing. When you heal your wounds, your skin gets tougher. When you remove blockers and barriers, your mind and body move faster. We are the only ones limiting ourselves. It's hard to hear this because ultimately we are the only ones who can do the work and lifting and removing these blockers is the fastest way to get you to just do the fucking work that you need to do in order to reach the success heights that you are trying and aiming for. So stop resisting the thing that you know that you should be doing. And I'm saying you, but really I mean me, right? Because I'm the one that's learned this lesson. You know, no one is going to hand me a magic bullet. Nobody. Stop. I need to stop fucking waiting for this magic bullet. It's not going to happen. The only way we reach success is by working for it. Or don't, you know, because it's our life and your life and your success and your choice. But this brings me to resilience. And this is still a work in progress for me. Because, um, you know, as it is actually working on and understanding and inherently knowing my value, like I know that I feel loved now, I know that I am lovable. um, And so, you know, like that's the first step. And now I'm working on the resilience. And for me, resilience in this industry is the ability to make decisions quickly and pivot your business into the most effective, efficient and profit generating position that you can be in. And as I've already said, 
we're fucking ballerinas or we should be ballerinas. We all need to get on our toes and start fucking dancing. We need to stay nimble, keep experimenting, keep tracking our data. We need to know whether our experiments are working and keep the ones that are and get rid of the ones that aren't. And for the love of the many and varied gods, keep working on ourselves. Okay, lesson two is me and you are important. It feels rather timely that I ended my fourth year working for myself with a huge shift at a conference or a huge mindset shift. Hearing Michael Andale talk about AI and what's to come was a stark reminder that no matter what, things will always change in this industry. What won't change is the fact that people will always read. It's a fact, right? Words are the foundation on which society functions. That's never going to change. We evolved because of our ability to communicate. We learned to tell each other stories of monsters in the wood and hungry bears. We learned to work as a team because we could share information about wheels and wood and arrows and 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 flint, for example. Yes, I'm talking about you know middle, Stone Ages or whatever. Um, But it's because we learn to work in a team and learn to communicate that we could share this information and then heed each other's warnings. That doesn't mean that we can fend off disruption forever though. Print exploded reading, the Kindle shifted reading, audio shifted reading. But the thing that hasn't changed is that that everybody in society still reads. AI will change reading. It won't stop us reading though. And I think we, what we need to actually do rather than being fearful of AI is to one, integrate it into our businesses and learn how to use it um, to, to best advantage. You know, the thing that I came away from that conference thinking was how can I make it do the stuff that I don't enjoy doing so that I keep joy in my day? You know, we all know that I hate admin. So can I get it to do some admin so that I don't have to do that? But the thing that I think that we will have to consider is how we market our books. You know, no matter how many AI books are put onto the market, they're not going to sell unless they they themselves are marketed. And ultimately, that's still a fact right now. It doesn't matter whether you put one book out this year or 10, you still have to market them. They don't just magically end up in a reader's hands. And the other thing is that no matter what, a machine isn't human, right? So to me, being human becomes even more important. Connecting with your readers becomes even more important. I think that we should all be working on trying to figure out what is uniquely us. What is the thing that we do that nobody else can do? And then we need to lean into that. We need to fucking jump off a cliff headfirst into us, into you, into me, and, and be the most me or the most you person that you can be because that is what will connect to readers and build engagement. Basically, exploit the shit out of yourself. <laughs> If there is another tsunami of content, then yes, it is going to become harder for readers to find us, but that is where curation comes in. And note that I said harder and not impossible. My advice would be to think about other ways that you have to market. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to think about what experience I bring over and above just the words. So think about you. Think about Like, be proud of you and all of your unique uh, nuances and drill into that uniqueness and then let the world and your readers see it. That is how we win. 
Lesson three is that the reader is king. Now, I know before I even like write or talk this session that nobody wants to hear this, but you know what? It's kind of tough. Like, I don't think you listen to this podcast or me for cotton wool and cuddles. Like, fuck cuddles. You come here because I give you machetes and samurai swords. And because instead of like rubbing your back, I line your shoulders with armor made of truth. So, I don't know, like if you want fluffy bunnies, maybe try like a different podcast because here is the brutal, unbridled, savage truth. Writing is about us. Selling is about them. The reader, the buyer, the customers, the purchasers. If you want to write for you and only you, cool. Like I do that sometimes too. But if you want to sell the shit that you're writing then for the love of your bank account, pay attention to the reader and the market. Like, I don't know why we resist this so fucking much. I wrote my first series for me. And like, I still love that series. And it's one of the only books that I have reread multiple times. And it's because it's exactly what I wanted. It's what I needed at that time. But also, when you look at what the market as a whole wants, that series was too complicated. Yes, okay, there were twists, but there were also like 17,000 different magical things and like the world building was quite dense and there were a shit load of characters and probably not enough page time exploring all of them. But this is what we do, isn't it? This is how we learn. We have to write the things that we wanna write so that we learn how to do it and then we learn how to be better. And the thing is, like, yes, there are a ton of characters, but do you know what there wasn't a lot of? There wasn't a lot of sales. And like, that's, there's a reason for that. And the reason is that I didn't write for the reader. So let me clarify, because I know that this is going to really upset some people. I am not saying that you have to write write to market or sell your soul. And I'm also saying, and this thing I am saying, is that even if you do do that and you do write to reader, there's no guarantee of success here. Like even if you do all of the right things, you're not guaranteed any level of success. It can make it more likely that you will sell more books because the book will have wider appeal, but you still have to get that book in front of enough people. So... It's a difficult one, really, because I do feel like when you truly understand what the reader wants and you bake that into your book before you start, you're more likely, like significantly more likely to win. It's no guarantee, though, like as I've said. Lots of authors as well struggle to talk about their books. I really did. I still struggle to tell you what my first series was about. I still don't think I really know. Um... I mean, I know I know better now because I'm able I have trope language. And so I'm able to use those tropes to explain in simple, like easy to understand terms. But it's still it wasn't baked in from the start, which makes it harder to um, to to get that buy in. And I really feel that a lot of us or certainly for me, I the lesson that I have learned is that the reason that it was hard to market my books or that first series is because I didn't bake the marketing into the book. I didn't bake the marketing into the story. And that's the thing, marketing, good marketing is another language. Like, and I don't say that to scare anybody, but to help you realize and understand that you need to learn that language. You need to be bilingual. Like, and hell, I don't know it all. I am still learning. I'm, I'm like, I'm like pigeon conversational, let's say. <laughs> okay, maybe a little bit more than that, but this is not the point. 
the point is, I'm still learning. We are all still learning. Good marketing is your reader's language. It's talking to them in their native reader tongue. And we need to learn how to speak that. Once you're conversational, talking about your books in the language that your readers understand make it considerably easier to sell. And the best, I think, selling books do that by baking it into the story structures, into the characters, and into the scenes before they even put a word on the page. Like, when I think about this, I like to think about um, James Dyson, the, the Hoover guy. James knew that he wanted better Hoovers, ones that actually sucked up like half a field of mud after the kid had come back from football practice. But he had to try, and now, like, I forget the specific, I think it was 5,026 times. Whatever the off-quoted, like, prototype number was, it was over 5,000. He didn't try and make a Hoover that could, like, also blow dry your hair or straighten your hair, for that matter. He made a really fucking good Hoover that did one thing and one thing only. It Hoovered. And I just feel like we as authors need to remember that. Like, we're not trying to do 17,000 things in our books. We just need to do one thing really well. Give the reader exactly what they want. If you want to sell a lot of books, focus on what the readers want, then iterate a lot. And hopefully, we'll hit the jackpot before we've written 5,026 books. I mean, that's my hope anyway. Okay, lesson four. Repetition is a fool's game. So Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome or, or expecting different results. Here's the thing. There comes a time in your author business where you realize you're doing a lot of the same tasks. Like, especially, so for me, this realization came because uh, instead of doing like one big book launch a year, I'm doing multiple ones this year. And like, so with this increased pace, I actually don't physically have the time to recreate everything from scratch every single book launch and that's what I was doing like isn't that mad I can't believe I'm saying that now and you know I'm writing every email from scratch I'm writing every social media caption from scratch like every single time I launch a book why am I doing that what the ever loving fuck was I thinking what a waste of fucking time this is the definition of madness. Why would I expend that amount of time uh, redoing stuff that I've already done once before when I could be expending it writing new books that would be, make me yet more money? But so, you know, now there is more than just book launches. There's audiobook launches. There's course launches coming. There's ebook launches. You know, there is other stuff happening. And like, I need to be efficient, my friends. Like, I need to start systematizing my game because... Like, I can't keep doing everything from scratch every single time. It's too exhausting. So this is what I started. And I this happened very late in this year. So I've only been doing this about six weeks. But um, a couple of the things that I'm doing are making my life a lot easier. So that includes creating social media captions for each of my books, each of my courses, each of my audiobooks. Any product that I have, I'm creating social media captions that can be shared um, and used over and over again. Because when you think about it, let's say you've got a thousand followers on Instagram, you're lucky, or even on Facebook, you're lucky if 3% see that. So of that thousand, you know, that is very, very few people who are seeing your posts. So, or even if you say, you know, 100 followers, then it might be like three. 
you know, we, you are very, very, very able to post the same content over and over again. Um, and you're only going to see a very small fraction of people who are going to see it more than once. And besides that, that point, look at the marketing, um, what's it called? Theory? No, that's not really what it's called. You know, the seven touches, right? Our readers, our customers need to have seven touches of us, our content, our products before they are convinced to buy. And so I realized that I wasn't actually making the most out of all of my books. You know, I've got now, I don't actually know, I think maybe 16 to 18 individual books, maybe? No, I don't. In fact, I've got the asset update, so I'll do that at the end and I'll, and I'll tell you. Anyway, I've got a lot and I'm not actually marketing them. Something my business coach said to me was, after I've launched a book, it becomes dead to me or after I've launched a course, it's dead to me and you don't promote it anymore. And I was like, wow, wow, that hurt because it's true. I'm very bad at shouting about the things that I've already got. So I want to be better because actually there's a whole world of people out there who haven't heard of my books and who haven't read any of my books. And so um, I am going to be better and I'm also going to systematize it more so that I do have captions that I can just reach for, images I can just reach for so that I don't have to constantly, constantly come up with new content. And that also extends to other parts of the business. So things like creating launch emails, I tend to do the same kinds of things for every launch. I do a sneak peek, I reveal the cover, I share insider info. Um, why, you know, I share the tropes. Like, why am I writing these emails from scratch every time? It doesn't, I don't need to. The only thing that needs to change is like a top and a tail. Like, I could write a couple of paragraphs about where I'm at at that point, you know, or what I felt specifically about that particular book that's launching. I don't have to write the whole fucking thing from scratch every single time. I'm really cross with, no, I'm not, I don't want to be cross with myself. I am a little bit, oh, fuck it. Like, I am cross with myself that I have gotten this far into business before I've realized that I should make these things more efficient and more effective. So that's what I'm doing. I'm working harder now on the business infrastructure, having things like um, a consistent marketing plan that utilizes and makes the most of the IP that I already have. Um, the other day, my coach asked me to write an asset list and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'd started it before and then sort of abandoned it. But I pulled it together. I have 20 presentation decks 20 and they're all just sat on my hard drive doing nothing that is an enormous like and each one of those is a minimum of an hour session that is a fuck load of course content that I could be doing something with and so I'm gonna make better use of that I am going to try and record uh I will deepen of course to make them like more master classes but I don't know why I haven't done this before uh I have a lot of content a lot of knowledge that I can share and I can parcel it up into mini classes that won't cost the earth and yeah like I can make them I can make the most of my content I, I just I don't understand why it's taken me this long to figure it out or not figure it out I've been charging really hard towards goals and not uh, taking a second to look up and breathe and just see what I've done and so that's why I like these uh, uh, annual lessons learned I suppose my takeaway here is that I have been too busy to work on my business, I've spent all of my time working in the business and that's something that I need to change. So that is my commitment for the next year is to make sure that I give myself time to work on the business. Okay, 
I am just going to do a quick asset comparison uh, before I go on to the final lesson. So last year, at the end of year three, I had uh, one, two, three, four textbooks. So villains, heroes, prose and side characters and four workbooks. Uh, I So that's eight. I also had three digital box sets. The um, books that I co-wrote with Jay Thorne had been taken off the market at that point because they uh, were bundled into one book. And I had one audiobook, which was uh, 13 Steps to Evil. And I had three fiction books plus the anthology. So that was a total of 12 unique books and three box sets and one audiobook. So this year I have uh, I have an additional non-fiction book, which is The Anatomy of a Bestseller. So that takes the non-fiction books to nine. I still only have three digital box sets because I've just been swamped. <laughs> Um, the book that I, the books that I did with Jay Thorne, that has now been re-released, so that's gone back out into the world into a bundle. I have, I then released the final sort of novella in the first series, and I've released the first Ruby book. I can't remember, I think I had two courses last year, actually. I still got those two courses, and I've got the additional uh, uh, audio book this year. So now that brings my totals to... 16 individual books and three uh, digital box sets, two audiobooks and two courses. And that feels like quite a big jump from last year, I have to say. I think it's because um, some of the things have obviously come back out and now obviously I'm including courses, which I don't think I did before. I am going to be very interested to see where I'm at next year. I think there's going to be an explosion. I, well, I hope. I'm really hoping and praying and, and keeping everything crossed that this, this asset list is considerably bigger by next year. I feel like it will be certainly on the fiction side. I suspect that my fiction will catch up to my non-fiction uh, although I do have a non-fiction book planned for this year so I don't know <laughs> that's going to reach double figures uh, so we will see but yeah I'm excited I feel like I'm really starting to build a backlist the one thing that I do want is to make sure that my fiction is building a um it, it is building a consistent backlist in the same genre so that's kind of uh yeah my goal for this year so that brings us to lesson number five, which is the same lesson every single year, that no matter what, this is always better. I, I don't know whether it's the same lesson or whether I'm refreshing it every year, but it's the thing that I want to come back to every single year. It's the acknowledgement and gratitude that this life that I live now is so much better than anything that I had before. I share a photo with you. So for those who have been around for a while, you will know that I keep a photo from one of my darkest days when I was working in corporate. I, you know, for anyone with high empathy, it's a very painful photo to look at. I'm in a lot of mental pain um, and it is written all over my face. And I keep that photo and I stare at it every single year as a reminder that I will never, ever, ever let myself get back to that place. 
And I think that's why I love and loathe sharing that photo with you because it's so raw and I am so emotional in that photo. And, and it really truly is one of the darkest days that I have. But isn't that such a powerful reminder? Like look at where I am now and the fact that I fought through that and uh, that I am on the other side. And I hope that that gives you hope. I hope that it gives you a little bit of inspiration to say that you can be in those dark times and it will be okay. Just keep fighting. Don't give up. I like to be truthful with you as well, though. And I like to be honest. And is every day a bed of roses in this life that I lead now? No, it's not. There are some days where I still worry about money. Like I am not, I don't have the bank account where I don't have to worry yet. I still worry about money. Last week or a week before, our boiler died on the same day as our fridge. And that, you know, has consequences. That has wiped out a lot of our money. Um, you know, I still worry about those things. Now, one of the things that I think is fascinating to me is in the Alliance of Independent Authors' recent uh, data that they have given the industry. I will uh, leave a link in the show notes to it. And what it shows is the number of books that people have written in as indies who completed this survey. And if any of you have ever heard me talk about Seth Godin, and the, he's written this very small book called The Dip, and what he talks about in the dip, it's sort of this bell curve that dips down and then shoots up. And it's sort of the life trajectory of most people trying to achieve excellence or mastery or them trying to achieve success in a business. And what happens is you see a little bit of success, you sort of ride that way for a little while, and then you either your income or uh, the business declines or you just plateau. And then it takes a good long while. You're in that dip for a whole fucking heap of time and it hurts and you have to dig deep. You know, other people talk about grit. Angela Duckworth, I think it is, talks about grit. And it's all of this same kind of concept. What was fascinating to me is if you look at that data and you look at that graph specifically, you can overlay the dip graph onto it exactly. Like literally, line for line, it is exactly the dip. And so for listeners who can't see the graph, essentially, you have this rising graph of naught to one, sort of two to five books, five to 10 books, uh, 10 to 20 books. And then between 21 and 30, the graph plummets down and only a very small portion of people have 21 to 30 books. And then what happens is 30 plus books, it skyrockets up. So what does that tell you? It tells you that 21 to 30 books is the dip. That is where everybody quits. They quit because lots of us can have 20 books and not have a bank account that represents 50K if you're in that group or a bank account that reps 100K or, or, or a million pounds, whatever. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that you have to write a fuck ton of books before you land on the thing that really works for you. And some people are lucky. They get to do that after five books. And for some people, it's 25 books. And for some people, it's 15 and 35 or 55. The point is people quit too soon. They quit too soon because they want immediate gratification. I want immediate gratification. I want my fucking bank account to look the way that I want it to. And it doesn't yet, but I'm not going to quit. 
And that's that's the difference, right? I'm in that dip. I've written, um, I think I've just finished my 21st. I, I really need to count properly. It, I'm somewhere between, I think I'm over 20. I, either I just finished the 20th or I just finished the 21st. I can't really remember. I will count after this. Um, anyway, the point is we see a huge drop off in the number of people continuing to publish through the dip. And if you read Seth Godin's The Dip, you'll know that if the majority of people, if you just hang on a bit longer, it, it, the, the, that, that dip plateaus out and you end up in a massive spike and you hit success. And some people will find that really like unencouraging. Like they'll, fi they'll find themselves demotivated. But I look at that and I'm like, success is just around the corner you know, or the bank account is just around the corner, or, you know, whatever it is, the the orange tag, the New York Times bestseller list, whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever it is that you want, it is just around the corner. And it felt so inspiring and so motivating to me that I have to hit 30 books like as soon as fucking possible. So um, yeah, that felt to me like a hugely powerful reminder to keep going. I do think that persisting through the hard parts of this writing business is the most grueling aspect mentally, but it's also the most important part of business growth. It is demoralizing to have 20 books and not have what you want. You know, that's a lot of repetition, like a lot of, um, you know, practice towards mastery, 20 books, but it's also not 100 books. It's not 200 books. It's certainly not over 30. So my point is, stay strong. You have to keep going. I, I am begging all of you, the world needs your words. There is, there's a little girl out there or a little boy or a little non-binary child who desperately needs your words. They want to be inspired by you. They want to see you as a role model, as someone to aspire to. Your words will change lives you have to keep going. And it's a, it's this time of year when I get all reflective and remember where I came from. I remember that agonizing pain that I was in every motherfucking day in the corporate life. I hurt, I was isolated, I was lonely. I felt like my creativity was being crushed and I was desperately clinging to the hope that there was something more. And this time of year is when I reconnect with that and I reconnect with my overwhelming gratitude that I get to be here doing this now and like a large part of that is thanks to you guys the fact that you listen you support you buy my books you know I couldn't I couldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys and I can't explain how deeply I am grateful for your support I also can't believe how much I personally have changed in a year I kind of want to go back and I reread last year's lessons, but I sort of want to hear my voice. I might go back and re-listen. I don't tend to listen to episodes, but I feel like I am more grounded this year. I'm more me. I'm more present than I think I've ever been. And, you know, like I have always been a, you know, bit of a mealerist. I, I have faith in humanity that we will <laughs> salvage <laughs> what we have done to society. Um, but I have faith 
in every single person listening. I truly believe that creativity is the seat of humanity's hope. I feel like creativity is gonna save us all, like one by one, one writer, one artist, one sculptor, one inventor, one engineer, one geologist at a time. Creatives are the rebels and we need to rebel and find our own truths, our own calling and piece by piece, the creatives of the world, I truly believe we are gonna help to repair the damage that we've done. So if you're listening, if you're doubting your work or doubting your words, stop it. The world needs you to publish your story. Words change lives, they change hearts, they change souls and minds. And I will never ever relinquish this feeling of thankfulness. It is a certainty that fills the marrow in my bones and tells me that no matter how hard the daily grind is, no matter how exhausted I am, no matter how long it takes, I am on the road to freedom. I am on the way towards my goals and I truly, truly believe that you are too. Don't ever give up. Okay, that is it from me this week. Next week, I will be joined by Ruby Scott and we're going to be talking all about kink. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.